welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Mario Martinez. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and best-selling author of The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. He specializes in how cultural beliefs affect our health and longevity. He's also the founder of the Biocognitive Science Institute that he established in 1998. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So welcome, Dr. Martinez, for joining us today in the Thriving Minds podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about how you came into doing all of this kind of work? Well, good science comes from frustration, from not liking what's going on, what from feeling that it's necessary but not sufficient. And I was finding that uh, with the reductionist science, it was looking at, uh, at, at ways that, that were keeping the culture out. And the brain is not just the brain. The brain is a cultural brain. So what I did is I, everyone agrees, or pretty much most people agree, that mind and body communicate with each other. What I'm bringing to science is that mind and body communicate in cultural contexts, and that affects immunological, uh, nervous, and endocrinological processes, as well as the brain. So I had to come up with the word biocognition, which uh, it's what, what it means is bio from biology, cognition from the phenomenology, but then it includes culture. The cultural components are very important. And it's really a, a, a combination or, or an interdiscipline of, of disciplines. It brings in psychoneuroimmunology, which looks at how thoughts and emotions in the immune system are, are affected by thoughts and emotions. Cultural neuroscience, how does the brain respond to cultural components? Anthropology, very, very important in cultural anthropology, because we want to see how we create our leadership, our tribes, and our archetypes that we have. And, uh, and of course, clinical psychology. And those things put together are really what I call biocognitive science. So I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, what was the journey that took you to that understanding? And could you give an example to the audience that may not really understand when you say adding a cultural component to understanding the connection between mind and body. Do you want to give some like examples of what that might yes. look like? Yes, let me explain first uh, and, and define culture as I, uh, as I see it. And anthropology argues back and forth, but culture really is anything that a group agrees on that has to do with survival and meaning, aesthetics, ethics, theology, wellness, longevity, all of these things are cultural. And an example of a culture, in the the, the thinking in uh, in some some places in uh, in South America and other, and other places, uh, consider menopause a problem. In the United States, is considered a problem too. And the word for menopause or for the actual uh, when a person's having the um, hot flashes, they call it bochorno, which means shame. And even doctors, although they know that it's biological and hormonal, they say she's having symptoms of shame or bochorno. We know now from psychoneuroimmunology that shame causes inflammation. It, it causes uh, molecules of inflammation. So the women in these places like uh, uh, Uruguay, or, uh, Argentina, other places, even in the United States, but mostly in those places, they call it bochorno. They have more inflammation. They have more uh, pain. They have more. Uh, they have lower self-esteem, and they have depression. The libido drops, and you would say, okay, this is hormonal. This is just how it goes. Then you go to Japan, another culture, and they call it konenki, which means the second spring or the second opportunity. None of those symptoms at all because of the, the women, their libido goes up. 
they are they become um, mentors of younger women, and they don't have any of the of the inflammation of the problems that you have in other person. And by the way, killer whales, they call it the grandmother effect, is the, the only other uh, species that does that. They have the grandmother effect. After they, they're no longer fertile, they become guides for the young pups to take them to safety and food and all that. So it's like we're tricking the system. We, we, don't, we can't have children anymore. We can have ideas. We can have service. We can have process. Wow, that's a great example um, for the audience to get their mind around. I really like that. Um, this... And uh, this brings me to the thought, um, and I don't know what your opinion is on this, is like trauma versus resilience. So trauma, like people that experience yes. a lot of trauma mm -hmm. versus people that have a resilient mindset around the same experiences. It, it makes me think that that would also cause the same thing as what you're talking about there. Yes, because uh, if you have resilience, is also cultural. Some, um, there's some centenarians that have all kinds of problems that you would think they'd be dead by now, and they don't. They're uh, in the caucus, uh, the horsemen of the caucus, for example, they eat excessive uh, dairies, and some of them have clogged arteries without any symptoms. Now, I'm not suggesting that, but what happens is it's an override that the culture supports. And the culture is really a perception. It's not any magic. It's a perception that we learn. And and the way to, to describe it is that... Um, if you think of the world, the world, your environment, has infinite possibilities of being interpreted. As human beings, we have a range that, that we can only see things without instruments, of course, with infrared and, and ultraviolet. That's, all, that's our range. But is that the world? No, that's the human uh, apparatus. A bee will see ultraviolet. A, uh, a, a serpent or a reptile will see infrared the um, um, bats will see, won't even see, they'll have uh, um, the microwaves. Uh, so first is the equipment that we have. Within that equipment, then we have a culture that interprets that equipment. And in that multiple interpretation, the culture becomes the fabric woven around the world. And we look at the world from that from that uh, fabric, and it's neuropsychological, it's it's neuroscience. For example, the collective um, um, places like uh, in Asia, which Asia is more collectivist, and uh, the United States, Australia, UK are more, are more individualist. Well, the brain learns to perceive in a collective way or in an individual way. You give a neuropsychological test to someone on memory and you ask them, there's a picture we're going to show you here of a man sitting on a bench at a park. We want you to look at it for a few minutes and then distract yourself. And we want to ask you what you remember. Okay, that's a that's pretty much a, a task, a neuropsychological task. The individualist will say, well, the man had brown shoes. He had khaki pants and a red shirt. And he was wearing a, a watch that probably looked like a Rolex. You ask the and this has been studied over and over. You ask the collectivist, there's a man there and there's a there's a, um, a little squirrel behind him and there's a tree that appears, it's interactive. So they perceive that way. Why? Because they taught the brain to perceive based on the culture beliefs. So you know, the interesting thing that this brings me to is where you grow up and the and the yeah, they talk about the people you surround yourself in but what i've seen by living in different countries it's also the environment that you live in really dramatically impacts 
your brain health, for example. Yes. And that's, that's what you're right. kind of alluding to there. Yes, very much. And when I, as a neuropsychologist, I, when I first started studying centenarians many years ago, I thought, well, it's got to be genetics or it's got to be the telomeres or it's got to be something reductionistic. And I, and I thought, okay, and the diet, well, in, in Okinawa, they eat rice and fish. In Costa Rica, they eat rice and meat. So, so much for the food. But then we looked at the genetics and the genetics doesn't go beyond 20, 25%. That's it. That's all it contributes. So the rest has to be what I call biocultural, the way of perceiving the world. There are no obese. There, there are some that are Rubenesque and there are no addicts. Of course, you don't live that long if you're an addict. So they basically have their, their, their rituals, but never abusing what they do. And I'll give you some examples later, but that's kind of to answer your question. Yeah. Definitely so, what you're saying is absolutely right. So let's talk a little bit about this. Um, you've done a lot of work. So a centenarian is t living to 100 and the super centenarians are living 110 years plus. And you're interested in the healthy ones, people living free of chronic diseases. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I'm not interested in looking at people who are vegetating at a hospital because that's not quality of life. I think longevity has to be health span rather than lifespan. So, so I decided to look at people who are healthy and who are older and he reach a hundred or as he said, such super centenarians, 110, 115. And those are the ones that I'm interested in because in good science, as you know, you, you look for what works and then you develop theories about it and then you test the theories. Well, that's exactly what I did. And let's and, talk about that. Cause I think the audience would love to hear what you've learned from that. Yes. Well, what I found was that, uh, there are collectivist cultures of centenarians like Okinawa and so forth, but there are also individuals in the United States and um, Loma Linda and other places. And what I found is that there, I identified four factors that I considered to be essential in addition to um, genetics and everything else. And these four factors can be related. I can give you information about the neuroscience of it or the psychoneurology of it. So it's not just something that they imagine. It has a biological consequence. The first one is time, the time factor, how they perceive time. Their perception of time is that they have all the time in the world. Examples, 101-year-old man at a, uh, a vegetable garden. And I said, this is, looks pretty good. This is really nice. Said, oh, that's great. But wait till you see it in three years. He's 101. That perception of time neuropsychologically takes away your fear of death. It takes away that you don't have enough time. Another thing that can be debunked in, uh, in gerontology. Gerontology, they tell you, well, as you grow older, time is going to pass faster because you have less time and the ratio is off or because your brain is uh, deteriorating. None of that. The, what causes the flying of time is lack of creativity and lack of novelty. In the first 30 years, you have your first love, your first heartbreak, your first this, your first that. After that, you don't have so many firsts. And if you don't have a high novelty learning, it goes down and that's what causes the time to, to run very fast. So that's one of the examples. They view the world as if they have all the time in the world and they have high novelty. So they never think that time is passing too quickly. I have a friend who's 92. And I said, would you want, want to come over and visit me, spend some time with me? He lives in another state in the United States. Said, no, no, 21 is too busy, maybe 22 or 23. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they view the world. And that has a biological consequence by the perception of time, how you perceive time, how the brain perceives time. 
we, as you know, as a neuroscientist, you know that we project out uh, into the future. So for example, if they're, if they're gonna shock you, a, a study that they're gonna shock you and they say, we're gonna shock you every five seconds for a minute, or we're gonna shock you every five seconds for five minutes, the brain makes a time-space projection and the ones who are one minute have less perceptual or subjective pain and less physiological nociceptor. The others have more. They stop in the one minute, of course, to measure. But why? Because the brain made a perception and said, time, space, five minutes, this is a level of pain that I can handle. One minute, this is the level. So what they do is they project all the time in the world, and then they live as if they're going to have all the time in the world. And, I, and they have a great sense of humor. I asked one of them, you have all the time in the world. What if your time ends tomorrow? He says, well, that's all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so they have a way of looking at the world. That's, that's the, first, the thing. first thing. Yes, that's, I think the novelty uh, component of that is crucial. I think that's the bit piece or miss from what I've seen is that as people get older, they stop doing things rather than course, doing, yeah. doing new things. They think that they shouldn't be doing this because they're 60 or they label their age and what that's they right. mean. And that's a societal thing, isn't it? You're told that you're not allowed to do right. that. And, and supported by, by the medical profession, by the way. They go and they well, what do you want? You're getting older and that's how it works. If you're feeling like time is flying, you're not being creative enough or curious enough. Absolutely. But what's interesting about time is that time is, I'm fascinated with time. If you're doing something that you like, we all know that time passes quickly. But when you're asked to report how long it took, you tend to see it that it took longer. If you're doing something very boring, you think that time is crawling. But when they ask you to report how long it took, you think it was shorter. But what, what the centenarians do is they, they think that it took longer because they're very uh, interested. So they project that longer to the future and they have a long future. So it's a perceptual process. Fantastic. So what was the second thing? Second fact? The second one is something that, uh, that our society um, and our cultures fight very much. And that is self-love. Self-love is extremely important. My mentor, George Solomon, who was the founder of psychoneurology, um, called it healthy narcissism. They have, they think that everybody loves them, but they have a, a an inclusive narcissism. I'll give you an example. Examples are always the best way to to explain these things. I went to Cuba to um, to talk to some centenarians, and the centenarian they gave him a party after we had our meetings and everything. And so there are some women around, and he comes up to me and he says, "Have you noticed how the women are looking at me? They're all in love with me." That's narcissism. Inclusive, he said, have you noticed how beautiful they are? All of them, beautiful. So inclusiveness allows you to not only project your, your significance, but also see the significance in others. And that's extremely important. And what do we teach in our cultures? Pseudo-humbleness. Mommy, mommy, look how pretty I look. No, darling, you never say you're pretty. You wait till they tell you, and then you deny it. So how are you going to build your self-esteem? Um, so... They don't care. They tell I, I another example, a hundred and two-year-old woman. She was beautiful. She must have been some incredible superstar. Anyway, she was still beautiful. And I said, you know, you're you're very beautiful. And she said, Oh, I know. I've always been beautiful ever since I was a little girl. How many people say that? They'll say, Thank you, or no, not really. I'm too old. What do people say? I like your hair. Oh, I haven't washed it in three days. I like your dress. Oh, I've had it for years. It's a way of desensitizing 
the ownership of your greatness. If you, for example, and it is a mom- it is a fine line uh, too, isn't it? Where you see people where there's extreme version of that where they love only themselves and no one else. That's right, because that's the narcissist. The narcissist doesn't really love themselves. It's a it's a self esteem disorder. But the, but the centenarians have a great self esteem and they can project that out to others. So, for example, admiration, admiration is one of the things that we study in the at the longevity center. Admiration increases oxytocin because it's good for socialization and it increases dopamine which is very good for for reward and all that healthy very good for the immune system but if you have admiration with envy doesn't work it's gone so these things are really important psychoneurologically um the third is their perception of um of aging Aging is a very important component. And intuitively, they they see it the way that I'm going to be describing it now. Growing older is simply the passing of time. There's nothing you can do about that. Passing of time. That's all you need. Time passes, you grow older. Aging is what you do with time based on the cultural beliefs that you assimilated. And that is what allows you to have your biological age and your chronological age. Can, so, we, can we, um, if you don't mind, can we just uh, tell the audience a little bit about that? Um, we mentioned we talked about that before we started the podcast, but there, but there is. Can we just describe to the audience the difference between a biological age and a chronological age, just briefly? Yes, chronological age is nothing you can do. If you're thirty, you're thirty. That's it. You've been around for thirty years. Biological age is how your cells are aging based on some indicators like uh, um, um, inflammatory. Um, um, molecules and so forth. So your biological, you could be 50. And if your biological age is 30, you're 30. Because you're aging like a 30 year old, not like a 50 year old. And or the way they did this was through research studies, right? Yes. Comparing 200,000 people's. Yes. Uh, Glyconich has, has a company in, in UK has done a lot of work and others have done. And we've done some work also with, uh, and uh, with the longevity center. Uh, that you can actually reverse biological age. We've done it with the, the biological age, and it's not with medication or anything like that. It's perception of the world and some supplements, but mostly your perception of the world. And I'll give you an example. If you are, um, let's say your biological, uh, we had one person who had 20 years younger biological age, but when he did the, uh, the test on the four factors, he was low on the factor of time which means that he was rushing time. So what did it do with the, although he had really good biological age, cortisol was high, which is not good. Uh, It can cause uh, hypertension and all these other things. A a little high, but it was high. It shouldn't have been high. So anyway, so that is one of the consequences. What did we change? Initially, what do you do first? He was, uh, the moment he got into his car, he would go on on his cell phone. Uh, he would eat with a cell phone. He was meditating, but meditating, and this is a, would be for another subject, but it, for the uh, default mode uh, network of the brain, that's what matters. If your default mode is one on alarm, um, you could do meditation and in 10 minutes, you're, you're alarmed again. So we made some environmental changes, some psychoneurological changes, and the cortisol went down and the biological age increased three years. So those are the interventions that you can do. 
and it and nothing can be fixed from the outside. You can put on cream, you can do things. It has to be from the inside out, not from the outside. And so let's let's thank you for doing that. So we're up to number three now, I think, in your factors that you've learned from the centenarians. Yes, well, um, yes. Uh, number three was the uh, the aging. Yes. And number four is a sense of wellness. And the sense of wellness, again, uh, what I've done is put it together into um, operational terms, but they live this way. The sense of wellness means that uh, you don't, uh, you, you inherit possibilities of illnesses. You inherit the costs of health and longevity is learned, is culturally learned. That, that is a premise, culturally learned. But because you inherit the causes of, of health, it doesn't mean that they come automatically. You have to trigger them. So let's say you have in your family someone uh, in the family, they have the family history, in, in quotations, of uh, diabetes type 2. That's not a sentence. That is propensity. And some reductionists will say, well, look, he has it. The brother has it. They all live in the same place. They all think the same thing, and they eat the same thing. So that doesn't really uh, call out whatever needs to be done. So it's it's a propensity. So what you do is you look for outliers and all centenarians and outliers. You look for somebody in your family who died of old age or or whatever unrelated to the um, diabetes, and you begin to emulate how that person lived, and you're going to see that that person was an outlier and lived outside the tribe beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So those are the those are the four indicators and you know i can go deeper into it, but that's basically all four that are necessary so you yeah. can begin to look at where do i need to make some changes in my life so uh, and by the way i want to tell your audience that one we're we're now on beta on on uh, doing the um uh, standardizing of the test but at this point we can give out the test free to add to the population and we can give you some initial um responses depending on how you uh how you come out on the test. So when it, whenever it's ready to go on uh, uh, on an app, I'll let you know so your audience can take it if they want. Oh, fabulous. So this reminds me of a story, if you don't mind me interfering on that. Because of course, yes. Factors, and these are just anecdotal stories. And we'll put a link to that 200,000-person study through that company as well. Um, but it reminds me of when I listened to your work on other channels, and I was about to, I think I told you this, about to go to a 90-year-old birthday party, um, which is my husband's dad. And his attitude towards living was incredible, where he was saying at his 90th, and he's had cancer and heart disease and type 2 diabetes, but he stood there reading a note out to 70 people of his mates and family and said, if I'm 100, I'm going to jump out of an aeroplane when I get to 100. And then at the same visit, we went to the hospital and saw someone else that um, did not want to get out of bed and couldn't really move anymore. And there's nothing anyone could do around that, even though he wasn't as ill in some sense. So I saw these two things play out in front of me just in the last four weeks. So coming across your work was really astounding to me because that it's never occurred to me because I've already focused a lot on you know, food and exercise and novelty and and reducing stress and con social connections as being really, really important for living well, free of chronic diseases. That's the blue zone work. Um, but to see this play out where he drank, smoked, not, you know, gave up and everything. And then you start, and, but the social connections were huge. But it was this difference in the will to live well, no matter what, 
And so I thought that was fascinating to me to stumble across what you're doing at the same time this was playing out in front of me. And I'm sure you were seeing this all the time as you were interviewing all these centenarians and other people. Very much. And I'll give you the psychoneurology behind that. Um, there's something called um, immunological helplessness, which you can you can do it to a rat. Uh, you can put a rat in, into a condition of no, no escape, and you can shock them and shock them and shock them. And they try to jump, and after a while they give up. They get endorphins and they get anesthetized. You inject cancer, and it grows like wildfire. You get that rat or, or a rat to learn empowerment, which is access to resources to overcome a challenge. The um, cage now has a little uh, light. And when the light goes on, the uh, the rat can push a little lever or something. They learn very quickly. After you do that, you inject cancer cells, nothing happens. Why? Because when you go into immunological helplessness, your natural killer cells drop in population and in effectiveness. When you empower you go into higher NK and other kinds of uh, IGAs, all, all of the good immunological processes. So your, your father-in-law has that immunological um, empowerment, which allows him to deal with things much better, including cancer, than that other person who just gave up. That, that other person who gave up probably won't be around very long. So I, I find this fascinating um, topic because... I don't know how you feel about all of the work in adverse childhood experiences, Andrew and Folletti's work, looking at how your adverse childhood experiences really predict mental health disorders later in life. And then, of course, multi-generational you know, impacts of trauma that you inherit, et cetera. And what I see, and, and you probably have seen this too, um, Eddie Jaco is another example. He wrote a book called The Happiest Man on Earth, and he died and wrote this book when he was 100, but he, but he survived the Holocaust. Um, the serious, like he was there for a number of years, four years, five years, went down to 28 kilos at one stage. Um, so this reminds me so much of no matter what happens to you, it's that belief that you can empower yourself to move from it rather than sitting in the blame of, of all the problems around that. What you keep talking about really resonates really well with me around just every, not like even cultural, just individuals at some level. Yes. Yes, and actually what you said, I'm glad you mentioned it because of the epigenetic transfer. And for your audience, epigenetics is really, uh, the thinking was that genetics transfers and uh, it takes millions of years for any kind of genetic uh, mutation and so forth. Well, that's not the case, that's genetics. Epigenetics means that the environment can actually make changes in your gene expression, not in your sequence of, of your, of your um, chromosomes, but in the gene expression, not only that, but to your point, you are inheriting levels of uh, stress from uh, a concentration camp, five, six generations. But those are the things that you're inheriting as a potential. I, I had a patient who was a, a um, his uh, great grandfather had been in a in concentration camp in, in Auschwitz and he had cortisol high, but basal cortisol was high for no reason other than we couldn't figure out anything other than, than the uh, epigenetics. So we worked with him on an epigenetic component of, of the of what was going on and were able to change that. By the way, we also do epigenetic markers at, at, uh, at the Longevity Center and, and because it's very important, especially Poland, which has been through a lot. The epigenetics that they have there of stress is very high because of the, the Germans and the Russians and so forth. So yeah, that's a really important point. But the good thing about epigenetics is that it can be changed. 
you pick it up from the environment and you can change it. And this, is, and this is the bit that we're, tr- this is what our podcast, why it's called Thriving Minds is all about, to be honest. Uh, we're trying yes. to help people see and because there are systemic factors, whether it's born into poverty, um, violence, war, all of these things, it's not to be put on the individual that that's their fault. But th- these little tools allow people to maybe maybe handle it a little bit better, um, the things that have they've been dealt, basically. That's how I look at it. Yes, and, and you're right, because uh, most centenarians have gone through hell. I talked to a centenarian who, who had been in a concentration camp and look at how they extract things to give them, like Victor Frankl talked about, the meaning and all that. So, so how was it? They, they're not Pollyanna. They said, don't tell you, oh, it's wonderful. Uh, forgive, forgive the, they, they're not like, they can get, they can have righteous anger, which is really good. So I asked him, what was your experience there? How were those Germans? And he said, they were SOBs. They were terrible people. But you know what I remember? I remember that there was a guard who was my age, 19 like me, and he would kind of bring me some food at night and he would help me. We became great friends. Then when I left, what I remembered, my mother asked me, why didn't you write me? And he started laughing. He said, mom, I couldn't write you. The Nazis wouldn't let me. <laughs> but look at the, the perception that they have of this. Yes. And this they, is the same. Yes. Angry and humanity. Angry yes. and humanity. This is exactly what Eddie Jacob talks about in his book too. He was the folk, he was always looking for the silver lining despite the adversity and playing towards that because I think whatever you put out there really matters in terms of your health. Yes, and the the meaning that you get, but it's very important that it can't be Pollyannish because it doesn't work. You have to get angry. So I'll give you an example. In the uh, uh, the Tibetan Buddhism and the Buddhism, they have the four immeasurables where you have the loving kindness and you send kind uh, love mm-hmm. to all. Uh, uh, may all sentient beings be happy. May they find the cause of their happiness. But they do it without doing the righteous anger, which is one of the causes of health. And many of them have diabetic problem, diabetes problems because of that. Uh, you have to first get angry and then you send them the best. But, you, but in the Buddhism in general, it's for others. You have to do, may I find the cost of my happiness. I'm and so glad you raised this because um, this bit is not discussed and I have this on my podcast a number of episodes uh, where there are a lot of people that have done too much meditation that are now in recovery from because of the just what you talked about. Yes. Um, and and the, and that part of Buddhism, meditation, sickness and everything is not discussed in the relative media. It's more. It's always on the positive side, but there is a lot of this you're talking about. It does have an impact if you don't look after yourself. Of course, we we have we. I'm very Buddhist friendly, but I also see their limitations. That there, it's not a science, it's a religion, and it's a philosophy, and they. they but uh, and it has some wonderful things, but it's too outside and not inside. I had a I had a Rinpoche, Lama Rinpoche teacher, and he died of diabetes, and I, I would ask him. Can I help you? Maybe I can help you. He would just smile. Yeah. They're not interested in their bodies. They're interested in that. Uh, Shogun Trumpa, uh, Trumpa, who was also a, a lama, said that that spiritual materialism, that 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 is a kind of uh, a spiritual egotism. If you if you're gonna be uh, helping people, you want to be around. Even if you don't care for yourself, you want to be in good shape so you can help other people like bodhisattvas and so forth. So there are a lot of things that we can teach them now from neuroscience. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's very important. One of the causes of health, because I talked about the causes of health, is righteous anger. Righteous anger is extremely important neuropsychologically. 
And um, my mentor, George Solomon, in the 60s, he, he challenged the concept that uh, if you have the uh, rheumatoid factor, you're going to have rheumatoid arthritis. He challenged that because it was possibly necessary, but never sufficient and sometimes not even necessary. He found women that had the factor and no rheumatoid arthritis, women that did not have the factor and they had rheumatoid arthritis. So what he started looking is, I'll give you an example of, of uh, siblings that represented the population. Both had been sexually abused, both women. One was 42, the other one was 40. The one um, had extensive damage, joint damage from the uh, arthritis. The other one, perfect. She was an athlete. Well, as you said, you come from the same environment. What did they do? So he asked the one with the arthritis, what do you do? Is your dad alive? Oh, yes. He's at a nursing home. I feel so, so sad about him. And and I go see him and he'll tell me to, to tell him the, the, that I love him. And I tell him and then all my symptoms flare up. And I go to my rheumatologist and he says, oh, it's a stress of seeing your dad. When people tell you stress, I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, it's a stress of seeing your dad. He goes to the sister. What is your relationship with your dad? Both violently sexually abused, by the way. She said, I can't wait for the SOB to die so I can spit on his grave. Righteous anger. But righteous anger is contextual. If you take it everywhere else, it becomes rage, and that's not good. She would get angry when it was a context of the father. She wasn't an angry person. That's extremely important to, to understand. Uh, and that's an example of why is it one of the causes of health. I think that's a really, uh, I've never really thought about this before in this way, but I think this is a really tricky um, thing to manage potentially if you're. It has to be contextual. Yes. And, and you don't take that anger and you don't become a victim. You don't do victimhood because then, because I was abused, I, I, I have a, a sense of a, um, that I can do anything I want. That 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 is really bad for your health when you do that. You're a victim, you've been victimized, and you move on and, and you you maintain your righteous anger until you let it go at some point. But in that process, you get angry and it's good. And then out of it, no more. You She basically, um, when I met her, the one who had the righteous anger, she was a very pleasant, happy person. She wasn't rage or, or, uh, or she wasn't uh, sour. But when you talk about her dad, who was supposed to be her dad and he was a sexual predator, then you have to have righteous anger. And that's what happens with the Buddhists, uh, that they don't do that. They don't do the righteous anger. In fact, in, in Tibetan language, there's no word for affect. Emotions and cognition are one. So once you do your cognition, that goes to what you were saying about meditation. You do your cognition and the immune system says, well, what, am, what about the uh, the emotions here? Uh, the immune system doesn't care if you're a Tibetan uh, Lama or if you're from Brooklyn. It, it's, it's the same immune system. With culture components, but there's certain things that you can't violate. So uh, out of all these lessons that you've learned over time, what would you say is the greatest one you're applying to your own life now? The power that the culture has. Uh, I, I'm, my father was from Spain. I grew up in a, uh, <laughs> in a German Irish neighborhood in, in New York. And um, at the time, there weren't a lot of Hispanics there. And this is pretty much, uh, I went to a Catholic school that was just Irish. So I, I have black hair. I wonder what's wrong with me. Black hair. Girls aren't going to like me. So I went to my mother, who was an outlier. And I said, look, I think I want to dye my hair blonde. 
And so you want to do it and look like a clown? Go ahead and do it. That was the first time that I said, wait a minute, there's something here. I didn't know it was culture, but there's something here. And this stayed with me later and later. And then I looked into it more and more and more. And I found that's the driving force for me, culture. So what do you think is the most important issue facing people now? People are, have lost a sense of meaning. Aristotle said that the hedonic life, the life of pleasure alone, was not enough. That you have to have what he called eudaimonia, which is the uh, service and meaning and all that. There's, there's, some, there's some genes in immune cells that are called CTRA, uh, conserved transcriptional response to adversity. They're powerful in dealing with uh, adversity. And they did some psychological testing and they looked at people who were mostly hedonic, pleasure for pleasure. The extreme of that would be the drug addicts and so forth. And people that had eudaimonia, which are people that have find pleasure in service, but not caretakers, pleasure in service with, with uh, limits. Boundaries. And, and they met with boundaries, exactly. They measured the CTRA of both highly specific immunological responses. Hedonics had worse CTRA than the eudaimonic, but not self-righteousness. So what do you think, um, thinking about the future and working now in these longevity spaces, what's the prediction out in the people, in the this science area of how long you think we might live to? I think we're, we are, we're able to live up to 150 and our perception and our culture and, and of course uh, the environment and all those kind of things limit us. But um, and and there are people that that have lived up to pretty close to 130 years, and some that we haven't studied that are probably more. But uh, I think we we have that ability. But I think what happens is that uh, uh, because of the things that that we perceive, the things that happen to us, of course, uh, uh, toxic environments and food and uh, can affect it. But I think centenarians are an example because centenarians, of course, come from 100 years ago. Centenarians in, in, in 2050, they're predicting that, it, that at least 50% of the people are going to live up to 100. So, and it's not just medicine. Medicine is wonderful, but it's not just medicine. I think we're developing a consciousness that we, we're evolving rather than, than at the level of uh, survival, at the level of meaning. So the fourth revolution is going to be meaning. So um, would you like to live to 150? If I'm healthy, Yes. So we, you don't talk a lot about the other side of the centenarians that are like in bed, et cetera, and not having a very, you know, that are in nursing homes and stuff like that. Have you been to see what that looks like? Yes, because I think there they have a lot of genetics helping them because they certainly don't have their phenomenology helping them. Uh, so they're basically living because of holding on to genetics, but, but, but many of them are... Uh, not all, but many of them are, are have given up, basically. And they have learned that at some age, something needs to happen. This is very important in the portals. Yeah, the portals are very important that I talk about in biocognition. Cultural portals dictate your biology more than they should. So a cultural portal, for example, is uh, middle age. Centenarians live portalless. What's middle age? I asked one, said, that's a dumb question. I'll find out when I die. No such thing. You never tell your age, and you live portalless. But if you, there are places in, in Europe that social services will give you a cane when you turn 50 because you're going to need it eventually. I know. So that, that's a, a setup. So these are the people that, that live through the portals, 
and have had good genetics and so forth, and and but they're not in good health. I That's notice not, there's a lot of mobility carts in certain places yes, to visit too. Yeah. That uh, it seems really crazy to me. Yeah, and 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 also uh, as I talked about, the brain creates a time space perception and and projection. If you look at, for example, you looked at your dad when he was a certain age, your brain is already saying, okay, a certain age, this is what I need to look like and be like and suggest like. And in middle age, you turn middle age, immediately, the culture will admonish you to stay in middle age. You wear a shirt uh, that, that's supposed to be uh, for teenagers, where you want to look like a teenager? No, I want teenagers to look like me. You see, you got to break that. After a while, you begin to dress middle age, look middle age, and get sick like the middle age. And I'm not exaggerating. No, I see that for sure. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, we really appreciate. Um, oh, my pleasure. This, the audience will really enjoy hearing about that. And um, I learned a lot too. And thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Doing. And congratulations for your work. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I think we'll have you back again sometime as you because I'd really like to learn more about that 200,000-person study too that um, where people can go and get their biological age measured. I think people would be – I'd be really yes. interested in doing that for sure. And it's good because it's not just – saliva's good, but this is blood. This is blood yeah. work. So it's a lot better than – 